13th of July, and you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast on markets and economies from DBS Group Research here in Singapore. I am Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 21st episode. Our guest today is Vivek Patak, Regional Director, East Asia and Pacific of the International Finance Corporation, known widely as IFC. IFC is a member of the World Bank Group, and it is the largest global development institution focused exclusively on the private sector in developing countries. Vivek has over three decades of experience in risk management, portfolio management, origination, and managing all aspects of the business for East Asia and Pacific. While he has spent over two decades in the IFC, in a previous life, Vivek had stints in ABN AMRO and Bank of America. Today, Vivek will talk to us about IFC's operations in Asia and give us a sense of its engagement in the region, touching on the ongoing pandemic as well as climate change. Vivek Patak, welcome to Kopi Time. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Taimur. It's a real pleasure to have you, sir. Uh, Vivek, let's start with the IFC's role in the region. You look at 16 countries across Asia and Pacific. Give us a sense of your engagement in these markets, perhaps in dollars invested and the sort of portfolio that you have across industries and sector. Sure. So let me just start out by giving you a sense of what we've achieved in the, our last fiscal year. Uh, our year just got over. Our year end is uh, the 30th of June. So last year, globally, we did close to $23 billion in uh, long-term commitments. Uh, this includes uh, the amount of capital we've mobilized. Uh, in this region, which is East Asia and the Pacific, uh, we did uh, about 4.3, slightly less than $4.3 billion. Um, this was, again, uh, long-term and what we've mobilized. Uh, and in terms of breakdown, the financial sector is the bulk of what we do uh, because that's how we achieve one of our strategic objectives is through the financial sector for uh, financial inclusion and inclusive growth. Uh, next is a, a cluster we have called manufacturing, agri, agribusiness and services. Uh, that's the next biggest. And third is infrastructure, uh, which is where I think we are playing a lot of emphasis. So roughly 4.3 billion, uh, about 40% in financial services. Uh, about 35% in manufacturing, agriculture, and services, and the remainder in infrastructure. All right. So infrastructure is, of course, a big play, but I clearly, you know, agri has become uh, a big thing as well. Um, what kind of instruments are you typically investing in? Equities or bonds? And what's the mix? And also, is it all IFC money or you are also, so to speak, an investment manager for other multilateral organizations? Okay, so the bulk of our investments are in debt kind of instruments. Uh, about 70 to 75 percent is debt, and about 25 to 30 percent is uh, equity and mezzanine. Uh, so that's the rough breakdown. But uh, also within debt, we've been moving more towards capital markets. So about five years ago, we were doing almost 100% of our debt instruments were loans. Uh, today, that number is, I think we are about at 20, 25% of our debt is into uh, bonds. And that is really linked to what we're trying to do in terms of developing capital markets. So capital markets development is a key pillar of our strategy across the region. So we've been focusing a lot on that. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of geography, would it be safe to say China and India are your two biggest markets? Yeah, so India is by large our uh, biggest country globally. 
uh, and uh, China comes in depending on which year it could be at number two, three or four. Uh, so that's the real mix. So clearly the two dominant markets are India and China when we look at Asia Pacific. And within ASEAN, what would be the most dynamic places? So within ASEAN, I think the two countries where we are seeing a lot of activity on are uh, Vietnam, a uh, lot of potential we think in Vietnam, a lot of focus at r and Vietnam. Uh, the other country where we remain very optimistic is Indonesia, uh, new government just in uh, the current pandemic notwithstanding, we were hoping there'd be a lot more reform there. This, Despite that, I think they are moving towards a lot of reform. Uh, so we think that th- that could be another very big market for us in terms of what we call our middle income countries. I can see your optimism out of Indonesia in your beautiful batik shirt that you're working in our conversation today. Uh, wonderful. Um, Vivek, uh, we will, I'd love to talk about Vietnam and Indonesia with you a little later in the conversation. Uh, but um, in terms of uh, your engagement with the region, so you talked about capital that you put in play. But beyond that, I mean, I know like the World Bank and the IMF are big into capacity building and technical assistance and so on, uh, you are coming, of course, straight into the private sector, not necessarily always engaging with the government. Uh, so you're, you're sort of a broader, if you will, in your uh, approach to the region. Uh, so would, do you sort of underwrite financing? Do you consult? Do you help with public-private partnerships and stuff like that? Sure. So uh, coming to the first point uh, that you raised and you, you talked about it earlier as well, uh, in addition to the own, our own capital, we also deploy and we assist with third party capital. So on the debt side, the standard instrument that we've used in the past is mobilization through syndicated loans. So, you know, we talk to commercial banks, we're going into a project, we get the commercial banks to come in and lend alongside with us. Uh, Then the second thing we also do is we also mobilize other MDBs, you know, some of the other DFIs, the European ones. We work with ADB, we work with uh, people like NDB if necessary. So we also mobilize capital from other NDBs. Uh, Over the past few years, we've also developed a platform called MCPP, which is a platform through which we mobilize capital from, in some cases, governments, in some cases, insurance companies. So this could be to de-risk some of the money that's going in, but also to try and give our clients a full package. And last but not least, we also have an asset management company, which manages third-party capital for equities. So we have different funds. We have an Asia fund. We have an infrastructure fund, we have an Africa fund, we have a financial institutions fund. So we have a lot of investors here and they invest equity capital alongside us. So that's on the financing side. On the, what I would say, the consulting or technical assistance side, yes, we do work uh, directly with governments or we work jointly with our colleagues at the World Bank where we may help them with reform. But in particular, we focus a lot on investment climate because the purpose of that is really how do they get more private sector investment into, in, into the economy. So we work a lot with governments. Uh, then we also work with clients at an individual level. So there we have multiple sort of touch points. We can work with them on uh, one very big topic nowadays is sustainability. So you'll have a bank that wants to issue a green bond. So we will not only help them issue the green bond, we will also work with them in terms of sometimes training their teams. How do they go about marketing for this? How do you get sustainability into your DNA? 
We also work with some banks and companies in areas like risk management when it comes to the financial sector. We touched upon agriculture in the beginning. So there, food safety and supply chain issues are very big. So we work with a lot of our clients there. And last but not least, PPPs are a very critical part of what we do. And we do work with governments in structuring PPPs and help them attracting investment. And I just want to mention that traditionally PPPs were really focused on infrastructure. Today, we can say that we've gone beyond infrastructure. We're looking at PPPs in the healthcare space. We're looking at PPPs in affordable housing. So I think the scope of PPPs is expanding as we speak. And that we feel is a great way uh, if structured appropriately. How do you get private capital into segments of the market which were not attracting a lot of private capital previously? Very good. Um, and uh, when you say that, you know, uh, banks or other clients, if they're interested in investing in certain markets or certain projects, you know, you sort of join hands with them. How do these people or these institutions find you? I mean, is it a part of a historical relationship or there's like a marketplace where IFC is advertising its capabilities and then private sector sort of joins hands? So I think most financial institutions have a fair sense of who we are. So typically it's us reaching out to them saying we have this project. Uh, we can provide, you know, as per our uh, policies, we're only allowed to provide 25% of the capitalization of the project. So assuming the sponsor brings in another 25-30%, there's still a gap of between 40 to 50%. So there we will reach out to these different entities, could be commercial banks, could be other DFIs, and try and mobilize them and invest alongside us. Yeah. So that's traditionally how we've done it. But uh, I'll just touch upon something very interesting that in the past, I think by and large, a large part of our business has been when a client comes to us with a project saying, you know, I'm planning on putting up a hotel in a certain country, say Fiji, and we need financing for it. But what we are trying to do it now is we are trying to create more bankable projects. So we work with governments, we work with the private sector. Uh, case in point being, we're looking at an area like uh, assisted living, which is important in Asia because you have an aging population in many countries. So here we work with governments, we work with our colleagues at the World Bank, try and do some amount of reform, and then try and convince the private sector to come in in this space. So we're also trying to create our own projects nowadays. Fantastic. So it goes both ways. Uh, Vivek, maybe uh, we should touch on the current moment. So we have this extraordinary crisis with the pandemic. Uh, you invest both in frontier markets as well as in emerging markets in Asia and Asia-Pacific. Uh, how have your portfolio or your markets that you invested in, how has that held up? Uh, what have been surprises, if you will, in terms of resiliency as well as vulnerability? Uh, what are your sort of key takeaways over the last four or five months of extraordinary times? So uh, I, I think, you know, we I, I think we're still to see the sort of bottom of uh, where we are right now. And traditionally, uh, there is a time lag of between six to nine months between a crisis hitting and a portfolio getting hit. So much as I'm quite happy to say, by and large, our portfolio has held up 
given the circumstances, given the extent uh, to which we're seeing a lot of economic disarray or damage, our portfolio has held up relatively well. But I'd like to keep, uh, I'd like to hold on to that thought for a moment because I, I think there could be some more downside going forward. Yeah. Uh, what we did, uh, and I'll just deviate a little bit, uh, you know, what we did as soon as the crisis hit, and it hit us in East Asia first, starting with China, is we actually started preparing for some sort of a relief package, saying how can we help our clients with terms of very quickly providing them with liquidity so that they can get over this current downturn. So that's the first thing that we are trying to do is how do you help your our own clients to exactly survive the crisis? Because liquidity starts to become scarce at times, especially when you come to tier two, tier three companies, because banks are being very cautious, as you can imagine. The demand side has slowed down very significantly in many markets, and in many cases, supply chains were being disrupted. So the objective, what we were trying to do is to really see how we can provide liquidity to some of our clients. And uh, we had some crisis response facilities, which have been pretty well received, I would think, in the market. Now, in terms of uh, resilience, I think uh, a lot of people were surprised with how the financial sector still remains relatively resilient in most markets. And there's a good reason for that. Is you know, everybody was the last crisis, which was just about 11, 12 years ago. People were expecting the current crisis. You know, human psychology is you expect more of the same. Uh, but this is not really a banking crisis. This is not a financial sector crisis. So I think to that extent, compared to what a lot of people thought, I think the banking sector so far, and there is more downside, like I said earlier, has come out okay. Now, what has happened within the banking sector is the non-bank finance institutions, the NBFIs, uh, they've obviously been harder hit because they didn't have the kind of access to liquidity that a commercial bank has had. Uh, an area which got hit very quickly and I think will take some time to recover is tourism. Uh, tourism is a very important part or a very important component of many economies in this region, as you can imagine. And uh, based on some analytical work that we've done for every direct job that you create in tourism, you could create between six to eight indirect jobs. Yeah. So that and the moment the, and, you know, the, the globe has never seen something like these travel lockdowns that we're seeing today. And because of that, tourism literally overnight started to dried up there. Yeah. So that sector, I think, has been harder hit than what we had imagined because nobody thought that the scope of the lockdowns is going to be that severe and across the world. Yeah. So that's where I would come out. I think a lot of other sectors, uh, we are seeing green shoots. We are seeing economies picking up. Part of it, I believe, is a catching up. You know, when you haven't spent for three, four months, uh, and as soon as lockdowns are being lifted and you have an opportunity, you will go out and try and eat. You will try and spend money, you know, going out, having a good time. And you, there's also a lot of stuff that you would have wanted to buy, which you haven't bought over the last three, four months. So I think we are seeing some pickup in that. But I think it really varies from country to country. And it's too early to say how strong or how sustained that demand that we're seeing today is going to continue. Sure, Vivek, you know, we are sitting here in Singapore, um, you're sitting in Hong Kong, uh, and most of our conversation is about the West and South Asia, East Asia. You, of course, spend a lot of your time looking at the Pacific. Um, so tell us about the island economies. You mentioned casually earlier about Fiji, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about how these island economies, which at least, you know, on paper look so remote that, you know, the pandemic should not be affecting them, but are they also getting hit? 
Yeah, so the good news is that most of the island economies did not get impacted in terms of the number of cases they had. You know, you had a few cases in Fiji and uh, they were able to sort of, uh, you know, lock down. And they, I think so they've, they've come out of that by and large, Fiji, PNG, smaller places, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu. The number of cases haven't been much. But uh, talking about a country like Fiji, uh, tourism is a very, very big part of their economy. Sure. And with the travel bans, that sector has been hit very hard. So based on what we know, and it's in the press, they are really talking about creating travel corridors or travel bubbles. So any of the island economies, and most of them do rely very heavily on tourism. They've been they sort of, in some ways, they've been harder hit than they should have because they managed to control the, the virus or the pandemic. But the sort of uh, effects that has caused on because of the stoppage of travel or travel bans, that's hit them hard. Then some of the other markets are, you know, rel a, a lot more reliant on natural resources. And we all saw oil prices coming down. I think there's been a typical slowdown in commodity prices because of the overall uh, uh, slowdown in demand. So countries like PNG are also witnessing that at the same time. So the island economies have been pretty hard hit, but I think the good news is that the governments are reacting well. Uh, there is a lot of support that we hope that we can garner collectively, and that should, I think, help them to bounce back. But I think critical to a lot of the economies bouncing back is going to be the ability of uh, people to travel again and tourism picking up there. Right, and unless we have a pretty decent and effective treatment around COVID-19, it'll be tough for uh, tourism to come back, at least the confidence around tourism to come back. Vivek, uh, the other coin, side of the you know, trade tourism coin is trade. And in 2009, uh, trade finance was deeply affected. Um, now, we all know that in ASEAN in particular, a region that has built its economic model by and large around trade, it's been heavily disrupted. And there's been a lot of uh, uh, concern about the economic outlook given the contraction of trade. But with respect to the mechanism of trade, um, trade credit, financing, uh, settlement, uh, port uh, movement, and so on, has that been affected as badly as it was in 09, or we have learned some lessons and we put them in place this time? So I think this time around, what happened in 09 is that financial markets pretty much froze, as you remember. And when financial markets freeze, obviously the ability of banks to continue providing trade finance starts to go down. So this time, and again, it really d depends on which market you talk about. We haven't seen it. I don't think it's been that serious. Yes, some international banks decided to cut their lines, and that's why we actually stepped up. In Vietnam, in less than a week, we increased our trade finance capacity for banks by almost 300 million. Uh, so I think there the impact has been a lot less uh, because I think is, I think like you correctly said, regional banks and local banks have become a little more resilient to global shocks, uh, this one notwithstanding, because of the lessons they learned in 97, 98 during the Asian financial crisis and more recently the global financial crisis. So I, I think the impact on the ability to finance trade flows has been less impacted. I think this time around it's more that supply chains were just cut off because in some countries manufacturing came to a halt so you know and in this day and age where supply chains are so integrated that you literally have 
you know, buttons coming from somewhere, threat coming from somewhere, even when it comes to garments, let alone complex uh, electronic uh, instruments or uh, gadgets. So I think uh, that really caused some concerns and some amount of disruption. But I think by and large in Asia, we are seeing that opening up. Uh, India still remains under some sort of lockdown. Indonesia, parts of the Philippines. But Vietnam is very open. Thailand is getting to be open. China is opening up. So we are seeing a lot of countries have opened up. So that has improved trade flows. Uh, obviously, the question on everybody's mind is, uh, as a result of what we've just been through, will com com countries start to start you know, want uh, reduce their reliance on cross-border trade and have sort of what we're talking about reshoring starting. Uh, so let's see how that pans out. But uh, it's a bit too early to say how, how exactly that will pan out, in my view, at least. Well, let's stay with that subject a little longer, if you would allow me to. Um, the imperative, if you will, for reshoring to build a more resilient economy that is not as dependent as external uh, linkages, uh, it's a trade-off, right? Because we have prospered tremendously in the last three decades, keeping our markets open and being part of a supply chain, particularly in ASEAN and North Asia. You think that uh, we're seeing a decisive shift and do you see that as a mixed blessing or you think that it's an out-and-out -out negative? See, it's, it's, I think there are two things here. One is companies want to reduce their reliance on a single country. And so, and that trend had started well before the current uh, crisis hit us. Right. So, you know, uh, and this is something that we witnessed for many decades. You know, companies will want, I mean, and it's a part of normal risk management. So we had a lot of manufacturing uh, moving to Vietnam. And I wouldn't say moving to Vietnam because not that people backed up from, say, China and moved to Vietnam. I think they just expanded in Vietnam by and large. Yeah. So that trend, I think, will continue. And that trend, I think, makes sense from a risk management perspective. So you may want to, instead of two countries, you may want to have manufacturing facilities in three or four countries. But if people are talking about moving manufacturing and being 100% reliant and sort of no and reducing trade flows, I think there the big question is going to be, there is going to be a cost. Yeah. So either the company is willing to reduce margins or the consumer is willing to pay more, or the government is willing to subsidize the cost differential. And the current state of play, I think all three are hard. So I think certain sectors, we will see that. Countries will say this is of national importance for us. Uh, this is a security risk for us. So those sectors, we may see a little more, bit more of reshoring. Otherwise, I think it's a big question mark on whether we'll see it to the extent people think it may happen. Like I said, it's a matter of cost. If you can produce something as competitively as when you were importing it, then I think it makes a lot of sense to do it. Why not? You're, you're you know, uh, from a cost-benefit analysis, it makes a lot of sense. But if it means paying more, I think someone has to be willing to bear that cost, really. Right. Uh, paying more is the big question for a variety of things, including the issue of onshoring, but also the broader issues like uh, who's going to play for adjusting our economy, so for example, climate change and stuff like that. So Vivek, whenever I go to the IFC's website and see press releases from IFC, I always see a couple of words very intensively used. So one is, of course, the issue of inclusive growth and inequality, and the other is climate change. Um, and so would you give us a little sense of IFC's commitment to climate change in general? And you touched briefly on green financing, 
earlier, if you could elaborate that a on that a little bit more. So you made a comment, Taimur, if I may repeat, you said that there, there may be a cost to climate change. So I think there definitely is going to be a cost to climate change. Uh, in terms of the negatives, I think climate risk is a major risk. I think if I was a central bank governor today, I would be asking the banks in my country to understand how much risk their portfolios are carrying because of the impact of climate. Uh, at the same time, I think climate is a huge opportunity. I mean, you look at a thing like green buildings. Uh, payback periods have reduced to between two to three years. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if I was to construct a green building as against what I call a brown building, five, seven years from now, the green building will have more value. So climate is, is, is an important thing to talk about. It's, it's an imperative because not only does it mean risk, but I also think it makes a lot of business sense. Yeah. Climate is about reducing our carbon footprint at, at one level. Reducing a carbon footprint means can we use water more efficiently? Can we use energy more efficiently? Can we manage our waste more efficiently and productively? Uh, you look at plastics. I think that that's going to be, I mean, the plastics are now see, have now been seeping into our, our, our food chains, our food supply chains. So the health impact that climate is going to have in the not so distant future is going to be very significant in terms of the stress it will put upon healthcare systems and healthcare costs. So clearly this is important for us at, at all levels. So we've been a lot more focused on climate over the last few years. And for example, uh, the previous year, 48% of our, our investments in this region, East Asia and the Pacific, were related to climate. And that's a percentage I would like to hope we can continue to increase. Uh, the year just ended, it was a bit lower because of a lot of our uh, investments went towards the crisis response in the immediate term, you know, in terms of liquidity support to some of our clients. But I think that the percentage, the proportion of our climate-related investments will only keep going up over the next few years. Yeah. Uh, so that is really fundamental. And I am a big believer in that personally, uh, not and I don't believe it should be a CSR activity. In fact, the other day I was at a webinar and someone was linking climate investments to CSR. And I said, no, I don't think that's the way to do it. If it doesn't make money, be careful. Because you cannot keep putting CSR activity for decades and end. And I'll give you an example. Personally, when I used to be in risk, our first few investments in renewable energy, which was in wind or solar, I actually declined three of them because I said they don't make sense from a business perspective. Tariffs at 25 cents don't make sense when you could get uh, for solar or wind, when you could get coal at 8 cents at that point in time. Today, that math has completely changed because solar prices have come down to 5 cents in many countries. Uh, wind is coming down quite rapidly as well. So whether it's energy, whether it's green buildings. And the reason I talk a lot about green buildings, because I think urbanization is going to be a major sort of factor in the coming few decades, at least in this part of the world, in Asia. Urbanization means you need more housing, you need more schools, you need hospitals, you need all the other social infrastructure, you need office space. So which means you're going to have a lot of construction coming up. And it's important that all of that is done correctly in a climate-friendly and a green way. It's important that we expand and build new cities in a way that it makes a lot of sense in terms of how you manage waste, water. And I touched upon plastics. I think plastics is 
I, I call it the new cancer that's emerging and uh, it's quite scary actually what's happening with plastic waste today. So we are doing a lot of work on that front as well. Yes, I think I read somewhere recently about like eating seafood is like exposing us to consuming, literally consuming plastic particles because it's just you know taking over uh, the, the sea waters around the world. Vivek, you had mentioned something earlier about um, green buildings taking two, three years to get the full payback. I want to touch on that momentarily um, because I know that's close to your heart and I'm very curious to learn more about that. But before I go there, in the last four or five months, you've been in intensive discussion with companies in your portfolio as well as governments. Um, you, do you fear that this pandemic will distract us from the climate change imperative? Or do you think in ASEAN there is, or in East Asia in general, there is sufficient resolve among government officials and in the corporate boardrooms to maintain the momentum that has been painstakingly built up? So I, I'm quite confident when I've talked to my counterparts in government that uh, they would all like a green recovery. When I talk to a lot of our clients, they would also like a green recovery. But what I am a bit concerned about is uh, if I have a dollar access to one dollar today, will I be using that one dollar to keep my factories running or will I be using that one dollar to reducing my carbon footprint? And I think that's where an institution like us steps in because we would like to make sure that our, client, that our clients have access to enough capital to not only ensure their economic and financial viability so that they can continue, because you know at the end of the day, if companies stop operating, it's going to have a disastrous effect on climate. You know, idle factories means more unemployment, uh, and that will directly and indirectly create havoc in the markets and in the atmosphere in many ways. You know, just wastage and things being thrown around. So I think what is critical is that we ensure that governments and the private sector has access to capital so that not only can they survive the short-term volatility, but make sure that they use this opportunity to start improving efficiency and productivity, which ultimately helps their bottom line. And, and I'll give you a case in point. I was talking to a couple of hotel companies, and a lot of them are having very low occupancy. And I said, so... Clearly, you need some amount of capital to pay the bills. You need some amount of capital to do routine capex. But hey, why don't you use this opportunity, since a lot of your hotels are running at very low occupancy, to retrofit your buildings into green buildings? And I have to say that some of them have taken it quite seriously and they are exploring it. So these are the kind of things that I think we are pushing, uh, including when we talk to our, our banking clients, this is a great time for our banking clients, we're saying, to talk to their clients to try and make sure that we're having what is called, what we're all calling a green recovery. Well, the green recovery is absolutely critical. And I've sort of myself been writing about this issue, Vivek, because the point is, if we're going to have a world where capacity in certain areas would be too much, there's no point in spending money to finance a recovery there. But at the same time, an area where we need to build capacity is on the green area. Uh, and so it's a, it's a no-brainer in terms of, you know, we're printing all this money, we're going to spend it, we should spend it on a green recovery for sure. Okay, so now this takes me to the area closest to your heart, Vivek. I know the first time we met, you talked passionately about green infrastructure in urban areas. And you've touched upon this already, uh, but let's uh, take a deeper dive into both the area of renewable energy generation in the urban area and sort of green sustainable infrastructure. I recall you mentioning some striking facts to me about how inefficient urban infrastructure is today. 
Uh, would you sort of walk us through that? Yeah, so one is, you see, the way urbanization has happened across, and I wouldn't say all, but many parts of Asia is cities have just expanded organically. Planning has been, I would say at best, mediocre, if not poor. And therefore, whether it's how do you construct sort of construction, so let's sort of break it up. Yeah. So one is, the fundamental thing is you keep growing, uh, you don't manage things like flow of traffic, for example. So that leads to inefficiencies, that leads to a high, much higher amount of pollution. Uh, so that's one, is how do you plan? Second is, again, planning your water, recycling of water, managing waste more efficiently, all these things. But most important, I would say, is uh, the whole issue around green buildings. So as you have more and more construction, I believe it should be green because it makes very good business sense. Like I said earlier, building A is green, building B is brown, which will have more, which will have more value five, seven years down the road. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to know. Payback periods have started to come down depending on which standards, depending on which country. But it's, typically, I'm told it could be around three years give or take a year or so. But the real opportunity is that you've already got, and in Asia at least, construction survives a long time. You know, buildings, uh, I'm living in a building which is at least 20 years old. I think my office building in Hong Kong is at least 20, 25 years old. So, uh, you know, when you have buildings which were built 25, 30, even 40 years ago, these are pretty inefficient when it comes to use of power, how do the air conditioning or heating systems work? How is the management of water? So I think there's a big opportunity there, not only for us to finance and focus on building new, making sure all new buildings are green, but also what I mentioned earlier in the tourism example is how do you retrofit existing buildings? So that is a huge opportunity, I think, that we should all try and capitalize on. Second is when you see an empty rooftop, or at least when I see an empty rooftop of a large office building or a supermarket chain or a hypermarket, the first thing that comes to mind is what stops you from putting solar panels on it? It's, it's that, that is not the roofs are not being used. Yes, you can have a small garden on the side, but the rest of the roof, please use it to put solar panels. And that will help you not only reduce costs, but also reduce your carbon footprint. So there's a lot of innovation that can be done. And, you know, I touched upon traffic management earlier. Uh, you know, that's that, that could be a big issue going forward, I think, yeah, because it's a waste of time. You spend a lot of fuel, which means you spend money and you breathe a lot of the pollution that comes out of there. So again, a triple whammy is what I would say. So, you know, putting this all together again in the context of urbanization, I think not only should we be focusing on greener growth, but we also need to start decarbonizing our existing assets. So retrofitting buildings uh, and coming up with other innovative ideas to try and decarbonize some of our higher polluting assets today. Um, Vivek, I, when I read about green infrastructure in Europe or the U.S., uh, there is a lot of investment happening on smart grids. Uh, like in the U.S., for example, the Midwest and the West, basically, you know, abandoned amount of land for solar and wind, but that's not where the demand for energy is. So you have to build smart infrastructure to take that energy to the urban centers. In Asia, do we see comparable type of work being done? So I, I think it's still early stages, but we are seeing it. We are seeing, uh, you know, if not just 
smart grids, but we are seeing similar things. We are seeing a lot more, what I would say, uh, home solar panels, you know, solar panels on people's home, home systems. We are seeing microgrids coming up. We are seeing mini grids coming up. I, I actually think it's early stages, but that's something that we are focused on because I think the future of energy supply is going to be very different than what we've seen over the past 50, 100 years. I think we're going to see a lot more of these microgrids, mini grids, and all of it will come with a technology or a digital component, which was what hopefully will make them into smart mini grids. So I'll give you an example of what we are hoping to finance in Myanmar, and we've already done a pilot, is where, you know, there are telecom towers in urban, in, in rural areas, sorry. These telecom towers traditionally, because uh, energy penetration or penetration of power is not very high in Myanmar, so these were being run by diesel generators and a telecom tower restaurant 24-7, we all know. So very polluting. So a client of us said, you know what, I'm going to buy a piece of land near these telecom towers, put up some solar panels and provide them with, and a battery system, so I can provide them with solar energy 24-7. But because typically a telecom tower will also be in an area with relative high population density, I will also then use the same solar plant or expand it a little bit and provide what we call these microgrids where they're providing power to villagers or villages within a certain uh, diameter from that particular plant. So we are seeing some very interesting examples like this. We're also talking about something similar when it comes to gas. How do you reach the remote islands of the Philippines and Indonesia, which today a lot of them are actually using diesel and HFO, which is quite polluting and expensive there. So coming up with solutions which could either be renewable in terms of gas or something with a lower carbon footprint like, sorry, renewables like solar or wind or a lower carbon footprint using gas. So I think we are behind Europe today, but I think we are playing catch up and I'm quite sure that we will get there very soon. No, to fund all these green uh, projects, you need green dollars. And you touched upon earlier about how you've been involved in uh, sort of green bond issuance and so on. Uh, how is 2020 looking like in terms of issuances? And is there sufficient investor interest in that as well? So the good news is I don't think we've seen any uh, waning of investor interest when it comes to climate. Uh, in fact, I would say to the contrary, uh, you have more global funds coming out with pronouncements on how they want to invest more in sustainability. So that is, I think, is really good news. And I think almost every major global fund you talk to today will either have set up a separate fund for sustainability funds or will be putting a sort of viewing their investments through a sustainability lens. So I, I don't really see financing as a major obstacle as of today. That can change. I think what we need is in some cases, faster reform from governments, and in some cases, the private sector buying into this at a much faster speed or rate than what we're seeing today. I want to um, ask you a little bit about two countries where you engage quite intensively and um, are capturing investor attention substantially. One is Vietnam, a very trade-oriented uh, and has been uh, one of the more resilient economies uh, in uh, ASEAN space in the last few months. And the other is Indonesia, which, of course, because of his exposure to tourism and commodities, has had a tough time. And, of course, pandemic management is still a big question mark. Um, would you give us a sense of uh, where these two economies are heading to, both in terms of the things that we talked about, climate change and so on, but also overall economic trajectory? Sure. So I think one is it's, I mean, it's going to be hard to compare them 
because they're very different countries, um, you know, and even in terms of geographic layout. So let's start with Vietnam. So Vietnam had, was already seeing a significant pickup and was doing very well economically. Uh, and I think it's been publicly acknowledged on the way Vietnam actually managed the pandemic has been quite remarkable. Uh, and if I, when I talk to my colleagues today, that's one of the first offices where people were back in office and it was almost business as usual. So they seem to have bounced back. Uh, I think their focus uh, should continue being on building world-class infrastructure. They've focused a lot on that uh, over the past few years, and we are hoping that they'll continue doing that. Uh, the challenge that Vietnam is going to face, I think, is that at the end of the day, it still relies quite heavily on exports, whether it's services like tourism, which is effectively an export, but also manufactured goods. I mean, Vietnam is becoming quite an important manufacturing hub for a lot of companies globally today. And if we are going to see a global recession or a global slowdown, which means demand will get hit. So I think that's where I think Vietnam has to be prepared for a bit of a slowdown, depending on what happens globally, something completely beyond their control. Uh, you know, everyone argues that domestic consumption can pick up and compensate. I think that's true to some extent. I, I don't know how much it can. So I think the jury is out on that. But I think at least in terms of economic management, uh, so the sort of debt levels that Vietnam is uh, controlling, I, I think it's all leaning quite positively. And from our perspective, it remains an important country. Yeah. Uh, Indonesia, on the other hand, I think was more reliant on things like tourism, coupled with uh, commodities, uh, relative less value addition. Uh, and I think that's where Indonesia is, I think, going to have a slightly slower recovery than Vietnam. And then you add to that the complexity of the country itself. Uh, I'm told uh, from one end to another, it's far longer than the United States. I think it's eight hours to fly from one end of Indonesia to another. So just managing a country of that size and magnitude when it comes to a pandemic is going to be definitely, at, you know, it needs management at a scale that I, I don't think any country is geographically that spread out as Indonesia is. So managing that has been a, clearly a challenge and that will continue to be a challenge. Uh, economically, I think you've got a fairly reform-minded team and despite what's been going on, the feedback we've been getting and the discussions we've had with them, they are trying to push through some fairly significant reform. Uh, we are hopeful that it happens because at the end of the day, in my 22 years at IFC, I've clearly seen a link between FDI flows, GDP growth, stock market. A lot of that is actually linked to reform. So if those reforms can be pushed through, if those reforms do take place, I think Indonesia will have a slow recovery, but will have a solid recovery. We're quite hopeful there. Now, I have to say that uh, looking at Indonesia the last few months, uh, while everybody has been sort of focused on how successful Vietnam has been in terms of pandemic management and economic response, um, as you correctly point out, Indonesia has, a, has had challenges, but at the same time, the last couple of months, macroeconomic data as well as financial market data would suggest that investors have not lost confidence in Indonesia and fundraising, which was a bit challenging in February, March, have become significantly easier. So just like you, I, I share a great deal of uh, sort of congenital optimism about Indonesia and let's hope that our optimism would be rewarded over time. Um, Vivek, uh, thank you very, very much for your insights. Uh, very helpful to know what IFC is doing in this region in these very challenging times. No, once again, thank you so much for having me, uh, Taimur. I, 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 I do think uh, 
this region is going to lead the recovery. It's clearly economically, it's far ahead, and I just hope that continues. But it's not going to be easy, and it's going to take a lot of uh, strict sort of uh, reforms and strict fiscal management, I think, on the side of uh, the governments. I think one thing for sure that IFC will be standing by the authorities and the private sector of Asia along that way. Uh, thanks again, Vivek. Uh, thanks to our listeners for your time. You can find all our research publications and multimedia by Googling DBS Research Library.